scripture, um, we talked about the fall of man, and we went through the whole process of Adam and Eve in the garden, their disobedience, their failure, their, their not listening to God. His disobedience led to death. And uh, again, this is just the summation. You can go back and watch the entire uh, video from our last session that we did. But there were three primary things that we pointed out. Number one, the fall of man led to spiritual death. We were and became spiritually dead. And uh, the Bible said in the New Testament, we are dead in our trespasses before he quickens us through the infilling of the Holy Ghost. So number one, the result of sin is that we became spiritually dead. Number two, it produced a separation from God. And I described the uh, nakedness that they were ashamed of. It was more than just a physical nakedness because the Bible said that when they saw that they were naked, they were ashamed and they got fig leaves and they covered themselves and made clothing. But then they hid from God when they heard him coming. And when God said, basically, you know, the whole rhetorical thing is, why were you hiding? They said, we hid because we were afraid because we were naked. Now, again, remember, here they've already clothed themselves with fig leaves, but they hid when they heard God come because they were naked. And so what I presented to you is that for the first time, I believe in their life that when God began to move in the wind of the day, they felt or experienced God outside of themselves. And sin will produce a nakedness. It will produce an emptiness. And, um, and, and, and really that comes down to there being a separation from God. And so that was the second thing that sin did, is it produced a separation from God. And then the third thing that we submitted is it doesn't matter how good of a person we are. Every one of us is a sinner. We are born into the fallen nature, and every human being on the planet needs to be saved or redeemed, and that's what we're going to talk about today, the, the concept of redemption, but everybody's a sinner. Uh, it doesn't matter how much you give to the poor. It doesn't matter what your, who your parents are. None of that matters. We talked about how through one man, death entered the world, and death came upon all of us, and everybody's a sinner. The Bible said we all fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one, and so it's important to understand, of course, and, and, and again, if you've got questions about some of that, please feel free to ask, but we did discuss some of those in our last question about little children. And, but again, every one of us is born with a, into a fallen nature, and uh, that's why we need the lessons that we're talking about. And so we went through all of that, and we ended that lesson with basically what now? How do we get from being sinners to receiving and enjoying salvation. In other words, that revelation that we're all sinners leads us, or it should produce the verdict in our life that we need a savior. And, uh, and so that was the final question we asked. And so it's from there tonight that I want to move forward and talk about uh, that very question. But to kind of do that, I have to kind of do a lesson 3.5 
and uh, kind of bring us up to speed before we really get to the nuts and bolts of salvation. I want to bring us up to speed uh, on the idea of redemption. Now, if you've got your Bibles, one of the key verses that we read from was Genesis 3.15. And of course, this is in the Old Testament. This was after man and woman had fallen. They had been ashamed. God has clothed them. Uh, he's done all these things we talked about. And I said that God didn't just leave them with the punishment. God didn't just, just leave them, abandon them, and give them no hope. But when they were in the place where they're going to be exiled from the garden, separated from God, all those things we talked about, God gave them a specific promise in Genesis 3.15. And again, if you've got your Bibles, read along with me. This is the promise that was given. He said, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman. In other words, there's going to be a conflict. It's going to be a rigorous conflict. There's going to be tension between thee and the woman and between thy seed her offspring, and 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 her, or, or his offspring, the serpents, and her seed, uh, the woman's. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, I talked about how this was important. When you if you if you see here, what God was doing at this point in the Old Testament was He was, if I could put it this way, and I like to tell everybody that the Word of God to me. The way that I view the Word of God is this: it's an unfolding, redemptive drama. And uh, what I what I what I allude to when I say that is from Genesis three fifteen. At that specific moment, it was as though the wheels of the author's mind was beginning to move into motion. And you know, the Bible says he's the author and the finisher. He's the beginning and the end. And so as a great redemptive drama, a great redemptive story, it was here in Genesis 3.15 that while we're going to see a lot of bad things happen in humanity, we're going to see the flood happen. We're going to see the wickedness of man. We're going to see uh, the judgment of God and the flood. We're going to see all these things happen. But what's important to understand is that while man here is separated from God, spiritually dead, he is a sinner. God throws into his life that in the future, at some point, there is going to be someone that's going to rectify or take care of this problem. In other words, the day's coming where the separation that you're dealing with and the spiritual death that you have there's going to be out of the offspring of the woman, something's going to happen that's going to defeat the seed of, of that serpent or the seed of the enemy. And all of these things that you're facing are going to be eradicated and overturned. And so what I like to tell people is when you pick up your Bibles and you start turning from Genesis 3.15, this whole book from the Old Testament to the New it is, uh, and I like to call it the scarlet thread because of blood, you know, the color of blood. But it's like it begins to weave, Genesis 3.15 just begins to weave this dramatic redemptive story. And it's 
it, it moves through history and it moves through cultures and it and it moves into a man called Abraham and Abraham emerges from the Ur of the Chaldees and and out of Abraham comes Isaac and out of Isaac comes Jacob and out of Jacob comes the 12 tribes and from those tribes comes the lineage of that which will lead to David and then from David moving down the line until boom all of a sudden here you are you're in the New Testament. You've, you've traversed all of these pages and, and the redemptive narrative of God trying to bring his promise to pass. And wham, right then and there, you come to the New Testament and Genesis 3.15 screams in its fulfillment at the birth of Jesus Christ. It's the beginning of something that's going to be radically transformative. And so from Genesis 3.15, from the Old Testament to the New, I want you to understand that the promise of Genesis 3.15 is in every single page of the Old Testament. Uh, I have wept. I have sat and wept. Uh, I, I want to weep now. I feel it when I talk about it because the pages of the Word of God they contain this promise of God. And every time I read it, I think to myself, the promises of God are yea and amen. What God says he's going to do, he's going to do. He's going to do it. His word doesn't come back void to him. And so while you go through the Old Testament, and I've told you, learn those stories, you're going to find times where it's going to be, oh my goodness, is God's promise going to come to pass? Don't you worry. It's going to come to pass. And so Jesus becomes that initial fulfillment. He begins to move us toward that fulfillment, of course, where we go to Calvary, where he dies on the cross. He's brought to the tomb three days, and he's resurrected from the dead, and then he's raised, uh, raised up, ascended into heaven. So I want you to put that in perspective. Um, the story of redemption, it, that's what, to me, the whole Bible is. It is a story of redemption, because when you get to Revelation, it's the redeemed of the Lord who are singing a new song around the throne of God. And it's the redeemed that have been redeemed and they've been washed white by the blood of the lamb. And so it's just a beautiful story. And so I want to put that in perspective. The next thing we got to understand is when you get into the New Testament. Now, again, I said we're not going to bog down in all the stories of the Old Testament. Uh, I, I've given us the stories we need to learn. I want, us, I want you to go read those, learn those. I will be uploading the companion videos for that. But when you, when you come to a screeching end of the Old Testament, there's a period of time, uh, most scholars put it at, a, at a, an approximate rounded up 400 years where we have nothing that is written. And this is called the intertestamental period. And uh, it's in this time that while we say we don't have much written from God, uh, if anything, uh, that God is beginning to align a lot of things, a lot of prophecies starting to get played and moved into motion. And when you open up in the Gospels, you find this individual named John the Baptist. He is the cousin of Jesus Christ. And again, go read the story for yourself. I'm, I'm challenging us to read through the Gospels. That's another one we need to do. But you see John the Baptist, he comes out of the desert. He's been living out there with a group of people probably known as the Essenes. And uh, he emerges and he understands and recognizes that he has a call of God on his life. 
from a very early age, in fact, from the womb itself, that he is what I like to call a preparatory ministry. In other words, his only job, his only ministry is to be the proclaimer or the announcer of the coming Messiah. Now, why this is neat to me is it's as though he steps out of the pages of the Old Testament and he puts his foot on the threshold of the New Testament. And it's out of the old that the finger of John the Baptist seems to begin to point outwards towards Jesus Christ and begins to say, this is the one. And if I can put it so uh, simple, this is the one Genesis 3.15 was talking about. This is the offspring. This is the one. But what I want to focus on, because we're talking about redemption, is that when, when John first met Jesus or saw Jesus, John was at the River Jordan. He was baptizing people unto repentance. Now, again, I don't have time to go through all of these. If you have questions, ask me about them and I'll answer them. But as he's baptizing them under repentance in a preparatory way, waiting for the Messiah, the Savior to come, Jesus comes to the bank of the Jordan River and John the Baptist looks up and he points his finger and begins to, with a booming voice, this was the moment John was created for. His ministry was to decrease so that Jesus, the Savior, could increase. And he declares, behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. Now, remember, we did last week, we talked about sin. We talked about Genesis 3.15. I brought up that redemptive narrative. We all know we're sinners. And I get, I get so excited at this moment when I, when I hear in my mind's, my mind's audible uh, hearing, I hear the booming voice of John as a sinner. Here's the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. Now, that is laden with so much. There's scapegoat language in that. There's so much in there that we can't get into. But I want you to understand why Jesus was called the Lamb of God. Now, the next part of this study we're going to get into, I want to do my best not to bog down here because some of it can be technical, but it is very important before we get to uh, repentance and the blood of Jesus and, and, and baptism in Jesus' name for the remission of sins and the infilling of the Holy Ghost, it is important to lay the foundation of the sacrificial system that they, as Old Testament Jews, went through. This statement, behold the Lamb of God, to all the Jews that are there, it screams with such importance and it makes so much sense to them. And it probably has many of them scratching their heads saying, how's, how's this, what does this mean? Because uh, they, they understood the significance of it. So I want us to understand that 
the sacrificial system, when you go back to the book of Exodus, after God delivered what he called his firstborn son. Now, again, I, we can't bog down in these stories. I gave us all homework from our first lesson to, to learn. Here's the major stories we need to learn in the Bible so that we can get an understanding of these things as we move forward. So again, I don't want to put the whole onus of responsibility on you, but I think it's very important to invest in your own development in the Word of God. And again, I'm going to upload companion videos describing those stories, but you should already now be going through your Bible learning these stories. And so one of those stories was uh, God sending Moses into Egypt, delivering Israel from Egypt, and he brings them to a place called Mount Sinai. And when he gets them there, they're going to spend almost a year at the foot of Mount Sinai before they move towards the promised land, Canaan. It's here at Mount Sinai that the famous Ten Commandments, almost everybody I know understands what the Ten Commandments are. That is where Moses goes up on the top of the mountain. God gives him these ten fundamental commandments, and we still know much of those today. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not kill. We go down the list. And so it's also during this time that a sacrificial system is developed with the tabernacle, which is where God's going to dwell. Now, again, I, I can't bog down here. But I want to explain one of the fundamental things. God understood that as a holy God to dwell among an unholy people that he wanted to use, God needed for there to be holiness and purity. And so you've got this tabernacle or this house of God being built and developed for God to dwell in. But with that, God establishes what's called the sacrificial system. Once a year, now there's other sacrifices during the year, but once a year there is what is called, today they call it Yom Kippur, but once a year there is the Day of Atonement. And what that was is the high priest, and at the time that was Aaron, he would, he would uh, take a, a, a lamb or a bullock, and they would slaughter it, and they would place it on an altar, and they would offer it to God, okay? And we do know the very first one that was offered, the fire from heaven fell, and they had to keep that fire lit. But he would take the blood from that sacrifice, and there were other things that he did with it, but he would move through what was called the tabernacle, and there were two places in the tabernacle. The first one, you had to go through a, a door, and it was called the holy place. He would go into the holy place. There were three things he did in the holy place, but it was in the next room behind what was the veil, where the Ark of the Covenant, where was, which was considered to be, the book of Psalms calls it the throne of God. That was where God's glory rested in a sense. It wasn't in the box, but he rested upon what was called the mercy seat. The high priest would take the blood from that bullock, bring it to that mercy seat. He would go around the back of it, and he would face where he had come from, and outside of that tabernacle were all the people of Israel. 
and he would take the blood that had been slaughtered from the animal that had been slaughtered on the, on the altar, and he would drip it seven times on the mercy seat. And what he was doing was called atoning. The mercy seat itself is kaporeth, which means covering. And so what he was is it was essentially every year they were rolling back or covering the sins of the nation of Israel. Now, there's a few things to understand about atonement this way. Number one, in its time, it served as a sin substitute. It was a substitutionary sacrifice. In other words, the wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. All of them deserve to die in the presence of God as sinners. But God made a way every year to, in a sense, cover temporarily their sinful nature or their ways. There was atonement made. And so it happened every year. And I've heard this and I, I, I there's, there's, there's ideas behind this, but I want you to understand that just one of the great ways to remember is in a sense, it was like they were rolling back the sins because look at what Hebrews 10, one through four says. And I did pull this from uh, another translation uh, and we talked about translations in our first one, but this one really helps make sense of it for all of us. But look at this. It says the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeatedly, repeated endlessly year after year, He's talking here about that atonement sacrifice. He said that sacrifice can never make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, if it did, would they not have stopped being offered? What a great question. In other words, if the, if the blood of a, of a lamb could, could make them perfect, they wouldn't have to offer another one. But the reason they had to do it every single year is because it wasn't perfect. It didn't, it didn't get rid of their sins. It didn't, rem it didn't remit them or remove them. It just rolled them back or pushed them away and covered them. And so it says, for the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. Look at verse number three, though. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sin. Now, God may be rolling them away, but the reason they're going through Yom Kippur and they're, they're sacrificing every single year, guess what's happening? They're being reminded every time the animal's slain, you are a sinner and sin is still latent in your life. Now, verse number four is crucial to understanding everything we're going to talk about as we move forward. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So right where you are, just repeat with me. Those sacrifices were basically a band-aid. They were temporary. They didn't get rid of sin. It's impossible for those things to get rid of sin. And so... Uh, we got to understand, even with this, this shedding of blood thing, 
Hebrews 9 and 22 makes it clear that according to the law, almost everything must be cleansed with blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, I want you to remember that scripture, write down that scripture. Don't forget that scripture because this is why Jesus had to die on the cross. And so um, let me go back here now with this in mind, the sacrificial system, the atonement, and now let's jump to John the Baptist. Let's jump back to the forerunner, John the Baptist, seeing Jesus. Remember, the whole Old Testament is about leading us to this seed of the woman that's going to help us gain victory over the seed of the serpent. And John sees Jesus, and he proclaims, behold, the Lamb of God. What we just talked about in the sacrificial system, the yearly lamb, the lamb that's slain for the atonement of the people, all these things, atonement, all those in things, the, the, the blood of bulls and goats, all of that is going to flash through their minds when he calls him the Lamb of God. So what you need to understand is that Jesus is being identified as the sacrifice to atone for sins. That is why John says, behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world, who's going to take the sins of the world. This is going to be the sacrificial lamb, and this lamb is going to take the sins of you and I. Now, that's a shout moment for anybody if we were together in church. That's a shout moment. That's incredible. And so you've got to remember that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, and that's important to remember. So Jesus's ministry, and when Jesus steps onto the scene, Jesus is the Redeemer. He is the Lamb. Revelation says he's the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. His entire purpose, his entire um, mission is to take our sins upon him, and he is going to be the great high priest when you go read the book of Hebrews, he's going he's gonna to lead those sins to the cross, and he's going to become the perfect substitutionary sacrifice that's going to enable my sins and your sins to receive forgiveness and covering and remission once and for all. Jesus is the final sacrifice. Sadly, uh, that many of the Jews don't believe that Jesus is that Savior. And of course, we, we know that that will lead to them restoring the sacrificial system, and that's going on even today. But we know as sinners that Jesus is the beginning point, the author point of our faith. I have to go through him to get to God. I have to go through his sacrifice to get to God. And so look at what John 10 and 10 said. Remember how I made the statement that sin separates us from God? 
and we are spiritually dead because of sin. Look at John 10, 10. It says, the thief cometh not, but for to steal, to kill, and destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. So look at, look at this. He is saying, I have come to bring life. All of you that are spiritually dead, dead in your trespasses, all of you that are separated from me because of sin, I've come to give you life, not just life, but life more abundantly. How's that going to happen? Look at the next part of this verse. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. In other words, he is revealing in John 10.10 how he's going to give us life. I'm going to give my life so you can have life. I'm going to die so that you can live. Again, that's a shout moment right now. And I think we ought to just right now, right where we are, just say, thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice and for what you've done for me. This is why I don't think we need to take his mercy lightly. This is why I don't think we need to come in and experience the good, goodness of God and leave and go back to sin. My God, look at what he did for us. Why would I go back to what I used to be, knowing that he came to, to, to die for me so that I could live again? And so I want you to remember that that's what Jesus's mission is. And so when Jesus goes to the cross, Jesus as the lamb, he is becoming the perfect substitute. In other words, we deserve to die, but God doesn't make us die. We're spiritually dead. We're separated from God. And when he goes to the cross, he is a lamb that is without spot, he's without blemish, he's without wrinkle, he's innocent, he's perfect, he's never done sin, he's never done wrong, but he becomes our substitute sacrifice, he takes our sins upon him, and he goes to the cross, and he, cr he is crucified for us, and he's doing all of this, and next lesson's going to open this up, but while he's on the cross, he's already looking towards Acts chapter 2, verse number 38, and Acts chapter 2, 1 through 4. That's what he's looking towards. He's looking for the message Peter's going to preach. He's looking towards repentance, baptism in Jesus' name, the infilling of the Holy Ghost. He's looking towards all of that while he's dying on the cross, and he's thinking, I'm going to do this so that they can have abundant life. Now, look at 2 Corinthians 5, 19. And we're almost done tonight. To wit, God was in Christ. Now, understand this. The Almighty God. Everybody say, the Almighty God. He was in Christ. God became flesh. John chapter 1. And what does it say that God was doing? He was reconciling the world to himself. Now, that word reconciling literally implies, and this is where we get the idea of uh, when we talk about intercession or the ministry of reconciliation, it means to step between two parties who are estranged from one another. And if I can put it this way, reach my hand to one, 
grab that person, reach my hand to another, grab that person and bring them together. What Jesus was doing was he was the bridge or he was the door. The Bible calls him the door. In other words, when he's on the cross, he is providing access through his sacrifice. He is giving us access back to him, God. And so look at, it says, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing. In other words, he doesn't put our trespass. He doesn't lay them on top of us. He lays them upon himself, our trespasses. And it says, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Look at Romans 5 and 8. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's another shout moment. While I was sinning, while I was using drugs, while I was running around, while I was, you go down the list of all those things you've done wrong. While you were that person, that's when he died for us. He didn't die for us when we were good. He loved us so much that while we were at our worst, he went and did his best. And he did all of that so that he could create a way to rectify what had happened in the garden when Adam separated humanity from God. He became, the Bible calls him a second Adam. He was obedient unto death, whereas the first Adam was disobedient unto death. And so he comes in, he dies for us. And all of it is, is it's, it's, it's the beginning of an opening to him. Now, we're going to get into this as we move forward, but it's very important that we understand that Calvary, when Jesus dies on the cross, that's just a part of, 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 of the gospel. That's just a part of what he's wanting to do. I know too many people that leave Jesus in the tomb. And what I mean by that is if there is no resurrection in mine and your life, then Jesus has not been resurrected because the purpose of his resurrection is for us to be resurrected. That's where we are given life. And so to put this in perspective and all the things we're talking about here that is very important, what we need to know at the end of this lesson is that everything that God did was to restore the way back into the garden. So the way is being restored. Now, we are going to move from there. Next week, we're going to move from that into um, the gospel. We're going to talk about, as I said, the tenses of the gospel.